When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Judy McLaughlin, the senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and educational chair for the Harvard Seminar for New College Presidents, as well as experienced presidents. Judy, uh, great to have you here today. Thank you. Look forward to the conversation. Could, could you start by telling us just a little bit about your own educational background, where you grew up, and, and, and how you started your career? Certainly. I grew up in higher education in some ways. Um, my father took a job um, at the University of Florida right after World War II, intending it to be very short-term. He thought he was a chemist, and he thought he'd go into industry and make money. But there was a job, and looked appealing, and so he took it with a very short-term time frame in mind. And he fell in love with life at a university. And my mother ended up going back to school as well, um, getting her advanced degree, and also working. My father was a research chemist in the chemical engineering department. My mother was a linguist who ended up teaching writing at the law school. And their love of the university was something that I never stopped to think about, but it was part of, you know, my growing up experience. I also sometimes think that my interest in academic leadership and governance came directly from them because during my childhood, my father became very involved in conversations about um, academic freedom. And he was the founding um, president of the state of Florida, AAUP, and the University of Florida chapter of the AAUP. This was a time when the um, many, Charlie, the, um, in the federal government, um, the McCarthy era, they were trying to rout out chemists, uh, yeah, communists. And in the state of Florida, there was a state senator who modeled himself there in Charlie Johns, who really wanted to get rid of communist homosexuals and anything to do with diversity. 
Um, he somehow thought they were all linked together. Um, and the university was under enormous pressure to have people sign oaths saying they had never been a part of the Communist Party to turn in people who they identified as as homosexual. And I think for my father, the, the final um, major event was when he, the state senator um, got the Gainesville, Florida police to go to the homes of professors who were thought to be homosexual, break into their house and expose them. And one of his colleagues was someone he didn't know very well, but somebody he certainly knew in a small campus that happened to him. And for my father, this was Ian. So I grew up with academic politics, with issues of, around higher education, very much part of my life. To be honest, I didn't think I would inherit the family business. I'm not sure what I thought I would do. But sure enough, um, I ended up moving in that direction. And after a short-lived um, time as a high school social studies teacher, I ended up working in residence life. And that led me to student affairs. Um, and that led me back to, I, I was an undergraduate at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That led me to Harvard to get a doctorate and, um, and so on. And, and was your doctorate, did you focus on higher ed leadership? Yes, I actually focused on presidential searches as a dean of student affairs at two colleges. And even in my job as a residence hall director, I was at three different institutions that either had chosen a president while I was working there or had just chosen one. And so the um, tumult that can happen during a presidential search, the time of questioning, the time of uncertainty, um, the consequences of good and bad choices were evident to me from whatever position I had, residence hall director um, or um, dean of student affairs. So I thought about the search as an interesting way to examine some of the larger issues affecting higher education and an interesting process in itself. I mean, as you know, David, and anyone who's participated in a search, either as a candidate or a member of a search committee, um, searches are fascinating stories. And so I chose to look at two particular issues. You, for a dissertation, you kind of need to narrow your topic. But my window on the search process was confidentiality and disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, the questions, having grown up in Florida, the state that had, maybe still has the most um, extreme sunshine laws, um, where all aspects of the presidential search have to be open to the public, including notes that committee members may take, interviews with committee members, files of interviews with candidates, files of candidates, and so forth. Wow. So I was interested in the sort of benefit, cost, political and practical trade-offs of those. And so my own experience on college campuses where searches had taken place or transitions were, were in place led to me to do a dissertation. And that led to me, once I joined the Harvard faculty, to begin to think with others about what we could do um, in the area of leadership transitions. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my interviews, and actually the, the first 10 years after I took a faculty position, I had the wonderful opportunity to continue that research on searches with um, David Reisman, who Henry Ford II, professor of social sciences, 
And the two of us together produced a book on searches. And in the process of doing that research, I was talking about the search with the person who was selected. So the new president, and I would go in, it would be a few months after the process when we were investigating the search. And I would, among the questions, I'd say, okay, so all this went on the search. Well, how's it going now? What's happening now? And a question that was sort of a wide open question like that often produced these very long conversations. The secretary and the, the calendar would have given me 30 minutes or 45 minutes to interview the president. And two hours later, you know, the president would keep waving away the secretary to say, I want to keep talking. And what I realized is that there was a need, a hunger even, for presidents to think about the transition they were in the midst of. That, as you know well, these are lonely jobs. When you go in brand new, you don't even know whom to trust. You don't have the same networks that you once had before in other jobs. And so the idea, Harvard already had these wonderful, well-established programs for leaders at levels below the president, and some presidents participated in them, but the idea of a program for brand new presidents exclusively for them, focusing on them, came into our conversation, and I had the pleasure of, of taking that on. Um, that was, David, 1990. I, I was going to ask, my, my next question was to ask you about the origins of that, um, you know, sort of who was involved in creating it, and, and what did those initial first, second iterations look like in terms of putting it together? Well, I was blessed with extraordinary colleagues who helped think about this, including a whole office that had, as I said, put on programs, IEM, the Institute for Educational Management, or MDP, or MLE, programs that already existed, that were well run, and that had faculty that I could draw from. So I wasn't starting from scratch. I had colleagues. Art Levine was a faculty colleague, and he was chairing IEM in those days and wonderfully instrumental. Uh, woman working then in um, our executive education area, Cher McDade, who had worked with developing MDP, was wonderful. Um, Dick Chait um, had left Harvard at that point, but we brought him back a few years later. But he was teaching in all of our programs and was just without question somebody that I drew upon in, in, in many ways. Kent Shavatar, who had, I think, was still on our faculty then, but then soon left to become treasurer at Bowdoin and then left many years later to become a president himself at Guilford, was someone who had taught in a number of our programs. So I was blessed with these wonderfully rich resources. Um, and then, you know, it was thinking about how to put all this together, how long, what to do. The first year was relatively small. I'd have to look back to numbers, but I would say 32, 34. The second year was about the same. And by the third year, we were up to 40. And for a long time, we were at 40 presidents and we moved it to 50. David, this year we're at 60. Um, and we're online as we were last year as well. So we've had to change formats. But the interest is still there. And it wasn't long before we realized that there was a need for this. And the opportunity, yes, the curriculum matters. I believe that, and I think our faculty are good. I hope they are. 
But the real draw was that opportunity to meet other new presidents and to have a place, a comfortable, confidential place to share questions, concerns, fears, hopes, um, worries together. No, absolutely. And I'm curious, um, were, were there any models from other sectors? Obviously, the, the business school at Harvard, you know, world famous. Um, do they do anything equivalent for new CEOs? I know of the advanced leadership program there. Did you look outside education for for some kind of model of others who were coming in uh, to, to these important new roles of leadership? Short answer, no, we probably should have, but we didn't. I think because we had these well-developed programs already on our campus, number one, we did talk, I should say this, um, one of the first things we did was to go around and talk to the higher ed association leaders. There were a number of other programs around, some that were doing just fine for particular sectors. And there were others that had tried and not worked out. And so we created an advisory board that in those first few years I don't think we ever met as a group, but we talked with all the individuals, both so that we wouldn't be seen as coming in and grabbing their space, be competitors to them, because that wasn't our interest. And in fact, with some of these programs, we have worked for longstanding for many, many years as, as good colleagues, where they refer people to us and we to them because we do things differently. And then we also learned from ones that had tried and had not been successful. So, so having done this since 1990, I, I'm curious, how have you seen the role of a college or university president evolve over this more than three decades in terms of, of you know, what's stayed continuous and what, what, what do you see as the biggest changes? The biggest single change has been the internet and social media, without question. I mean, the first years of the program, people were staying actually in Harvard residential housing dormitories and they would line up to use the one payphone at the front of the building i remember the year when cell phones became ubiquitous and people jumped out of classes and immediately went to their cell phones and we had to you know sort of set some norms around that so yes technology but above all the ability of presidents to handle incoming, um, uh, whatever incoming issues, questions, crises has dramatically changed. I still recall a president in one of the early years of the program when somebody said something about crisis management. You know, has anybody done anything around crisis management? And one president said, we created a, a handbook um, and others were really curious. So she asked her assistant to FedEx it overnight, mail it to her. I still have it on my bookshelf. It's a you know, vinyl notebook, very thin, one of those very thin vinyl um, notebooks. And it probably has 30 pages of very clear instructions. Who do you turn to for this? And what do you do for this? I mean, very well thought out for the time. Um, but one of the operating principles is you never talk to the press until you have all the facts and you've figured out the sort of narratives we would say today, but you've you know, created what it is you want to say because you will have more information than they do. 
and you want to kind of set the terms and the context and explain it. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because of course it's not just tech, but it's the time frame with which all of these expectations of things has shifted Absolutely. accordingly. And the fact that you may be not the last to know, hopefully yeah. it's a president, but you're certainly often not anywhere near the first. Something is already on social media before it ever, you know, um, comes your way. Yeah. And I, I, I think not surprisingly, that that is something that's so ubiquitous today and, and shapes so much of it. I remember laughing when I was was reading uh, this well predated 1990, but but um, the the letter that my one of my predecessors predecessors at Chatham uh, used to write, where he would spend the entire summer in Maine, and he wrote a you know a nine page single space letter to all the students and their parents about the <laughs> and I was just like this <laughs> this is definitely from a different era. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So so that you know, that the circumstances, the technology, the immediacy of and in terms of expectations have certainly changed. And that's changed other constituencies. Yeah. So boards have changed. You know, um, one of my colleagues in the early days, Tip Chate, in the early days of teaching about boards of trustees and the new president's program said, you know, many of you have had boards that have been honorific and sophorific. Well, that's going to change. And he was looking at Sarbanes-Oxley and understanding what was happening in the corporate sector and telling trustees, telling presidents that trustees were going to become more engaged, whether the presidents wanted that to happen or not. And by the way, most of them did not want to hear that and did not want it to happen. Um, and he was absolutely right, of course. Um, and for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is board's awareness of enterprise risk management and what that means for them. Boards have become more involved. I would argue that we're in a period now when it's that was in fact where whereas that once was making institutions healthier and stronger, there is the risk, particularly in the public sector, that it's gone far beyond that and it's intrusive and interfering and potentially damaging. And my alma mater, University of North Carolina, would I was going to say, yeah, probably the most high profile recently. Yeah. Have you seen a, a greater variety in the backgrounds of college and university presidents today than there was in the 90s? And yes and no. Um, by backgrounds, if you mean professional backgrounds, there's been conversation since 1990, even before that, about the rise in, non in presidents right. with non-traditional backgrounds. And it's been a rise and a fall and a rise and a fall, and there's not a, a long trend line at all. Um, you know, and, and it's been by institutions. Some institutions will have had a strong interest in that, and the next thing they do is choose an academic president. Right. Um, so you see the sort of bounce, bit of bouncing around. But what I have seen is if I do the Facebook from the early presence program, and I do the Facebook now, I mean, even visually, there were in the first program, I think, of the 30-some-odd, five women. The number of women presidents has obviously increased um, significantly. The number of presidents of color, we've seen an incredible change in that in the last year or two. 
um, you know, when I see the appointments on Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Ed, I'm delighted to see that we're tapping presence of color in ways that we simply had not before. And that's evident in this year's program as well. Another area, we're seeing gay presidents. There were gay presidents before, but they were not open about it. Right. And um, I remember an article uh, 20 years ago in the Chronicle of Higher Education at the time that a group of, of gay presidents organized themselves um, into a sort of association organization to come together. It actually happened, began, got its roots in the seminar that year oh, when wow. several of the presidents discovered there were three or four of them openly gay in the room and they were thrilled. And that was, you know, began a wonder. And the Chronicle ran a story about this and said something to the effect of there are now nine or 11, whatever the number was, gay presidents in America. And I thought, uh, no, there are a lot more than that because I, I can name them. But even then, they could not be openly gay in many places or chose not to be because they were not comfortable or they were very limited in the places they felt they could um, you know, be, be themselves. Yeah. And so that's changed. And the number of lay presidents, gay to lay, and lay I mean presidents of religious institutions, Catholic institutions who are not priests, who are not yeah. sisters. Um, so there has been, in this year's program alone, the number of people who are firsts at their institution, the first gay, the first black, the first Hispanic, the first Asian American, the first woman, the first lay, the person, first person not of that religious denomination of a religious institution. It's fascinating to see that. Um, and that opens up the possible number of terrific candidates that we have for these offices. Drawing on a much wider talent pool than was true. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I'm curious, over that 30 years, what, what have been the biggest evolutions in the seminar itself in terms of how it operates, what it's doing to prepare leaders? How have you shifted either content or approach um, for, for working with, with these leaders? Yeah, I, the topical areas actually have all almost all remained the same. And because presidents are still dealing with financial management and they're still dealing with fundraising and they're still dealing with their boards of trustees and they're still dealing with building their teams and so um, planning and, and but the conversations within those, of course, have changed over time. I mentioned boards of trustees. Um, that would be one example. Fundraising, some of the principles of fundraising that were once in place. Are no longer there and of course as we move into a even now in a new area the sort of whole notion of um outreach to alumni or to donors is changing um so the topical areas the content within them and of course the biggest change was the one that we all faced a year ago this has always been an intensely residential program as you know dave you come and you're there for five days right. and you are there from morning till night and talking with people all the time and in the era of COVID and during a pandemic that couldn't happen. So we had to shift online last year and we learned from that. We gave presidents the choice of doing it or not. And I worried a whole lot about it. And what I discovered was that, yes, of course, there were things that were not the same and, and some things lost, but the need was still there. The presidents who 
participated in that at the end of the year said, you know, we were so glad we did because that need for colleagues, that need for a place to think aloud was still very much, maybe even more so last year. And of course we did it last year spread out throughout the year rather than just in five days. Um, Because there's no way we were doing five full days of Online. Of intense Zoom, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And, and I'm curious, as, as you think of now, obviously, we still aren't out of the pandemic, but, but are there lessons you've learned and thought about how you're going to approach it in the future? Because I, I, I mean, I definitely resonate. I think the content was great, but, but certainly one of the most valuable parts was that the, the, abil- the time spent not just in the program, but outside of it with this group of people in a similar boat. And so those friendships, those colleagues that you can call in a tough time, I, I, that feels hard to replicate online, you know? And, and so I'm curious how, how you approached it to try to create that sense of camaraderie and, and those bonds um, that, that will serve people well, you know, well throughout their presence. Right. It's the toughest question. And for all of us who are faculty teaching last year and online in a sudden online shift, that was the tough question. You know, um, we had hoped in that first year, our plan was to be online through the year and then be together in June for two and a half days to build in. And Harvard wasn't allowing that. Um, that Harvard is not allowed on. Um, on executive programs to be in person this year. So we're back online. Um, And so we had to hope that the president's interest in connecting with each other would both happen in the program, but outside the program. And I found that to be the case that, that people would tell me that they were reaching out to each other. I mean, we were all in an online world. So um, that, that was there this coming year. We're hoping again to bring people back, in person this summer. And last year's group wants to do, if possible, this coming summer, a get together, and we will certainly make that happen. On the other side, one of the things we have figured out is, as again, all of us in higher education, there are some things that are done well via Zoom yep. um, and um, that make things possible. So in our ideal program, if we as we're starting to plan for a year from now, even while we're doing this one. In our ideal program, we'll start in residence and have those wonderfully intense early days. And then we'll reconvene on Zoom in February or January with everyone kind of doing a reunion, but not having to leave their campuses or if they're fundraising in Florida or Arizona or you know wherever that they can come in from there and they'll get to see people and say, how's it going now? Let me tell you this. We've tried reunions in the past, but they've involved travel. Yep. And given the president's life, that's really hard to do. And so we're creating in our minds content, not content of us providing instruction, but content of different kinds of conversations among the presidents for six months in. Some of it would be going back to the small groups where you're with like institutions, others would be a conversation on enrollment management, what are the challenges you're facing, or where are you with your board now, or you know, sub areas. And again, Zoom is wonderful for breakout groups yep. and for allowing people, particularly those who already know each other, to reconnect. 
And I can see that there would be real value because, of course, even with it being specifically for new college presidents, some were coming and you know, like myself and many of us, we started July 1. We were there a few weeks in. Others had been doing it for six months, some some close to a year. And so there's a cycle to it where I could imagine that being able to check in as you've gone through your first board meeting, you know, those things could be really valuable to people. That's been the fun of doing it yeah. scattered throughout the year, this year and last year. We just had our session on boards in September. And of course, people are going into the first board meetings, many of them in October. And so they're writing notes fast and furiously. Um, you know, so, yeah. So, so um, I'm curious, you mentioned that the, the origins of this really came out of your work on the search process. And so as you looked at and now served, I think, over a thousand uh, presidents over, over, over these three decades, have you come to some conclusions on, you know, what are those things, what are the capabilities, what are the characteristics that are either the most predictive of people who will be successful in this role, or, you know, what are the most common sources of failure for presidents? Either um, could be personal attributes, or it may be the, you know, the organization or the circumstance that they're taking. Well, that's actually... Let me start with that, because that, that's a good framing of it. There are, sadly, and one sees them if you follow this, institutions that turn over presidents. And either they're remarkably bad at their judgment as to who they're interested in having, or more likely, there are organizational issues that make it very difficult for a president to succeed. And I remember in the first decade of the program, there's one institution that will go unnamed where we had in the first decade, four different presidents. Well, it didn't take much to think something was going on here. Right. You know, when somebody is married four times, married and divorced yes. four times, you begin to wonder, you know, what's, what's yep. the issue here? And it can't always be the other person. Right. And that, marriage. Um, so yes, there are, org there are organizational issues um, and institutions that have, have had more stability with presidents, typically, although not always, but typically are, are more thoughtful about what constitutes the appropriate fit. Um, sometimes institutions in terms of fit feel a kind of desperation. They're operating in a kind of feeling of being very uh, precarious. And they reach out for somebody to, quote, save them, often reaching out for someone whose skills they think, you know, somebody who's going to come in with a business mindset, somebody who's going to come in and fundraise for us, somebody who's going to come in and tell this this faculty what to do and that almost inevitably does not work out you know it's, um, so some of it is on the organizational side some of it is on the individual side and um, again there are people who want who feel a different kind of desperation perhaps um, that may be too strong but people who want badly to be a president and will go to a place because it is interested in them without much 
careful analysis about whether it is in fact a place that they will be successful. And I will tell you, I have had presidents, one actually fairly recently, who talk about this as being, you know, as one preferred, one person once said, a starter presidency. Or as another told me recently, I'm hoping I'll do well here quickly so I can go to a better place and make more money. Well, a campus community isn't, you know, going to be happy with that as well they should. Now, those are the extremes. There are lots of reasons why presidents do well and don't do well. On the personal side, you know, what's often called emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills and political savvy are top of my list because this is jobs about working with people. You can be the smartest person in the world, but if you can't work well with others, this is not the job for you. Um, and so, you know, some of the training of a faculty member and even an academic dean or provost is, is good, but some of it is, you know, limiting. So there are people who should have stayed as provost or as dean because they just didn't have that other set of um, political interpersonal skills. Um, and then a deep commitment to, this is a tough job. It's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And the people that I see as the most successful, in addition to having a set of personal qualities are that, that lend them success, really care about what they're doing and they communicate that to others and they want to be at that particular place. And they believe in its mission, even if it's struggling, they want to make it work. Um, and that communicates itself to others, it's, whether it be winning over reluctant faculty or gaining donors or recruiting students, that sense that this is a terrific place and I am excited and honored to be here matters hugely. I'm curious how you think of it. You, you mentioned that, you know, one of the paths and one place where it sometimes uh, can go wrong is is someone was successful as a provost, but but may not be a fit for the presidency. And it, it's always struck me at sort of an interesting challenge within higher ed that, you know, most people who choose to be faculty probably are not thinking about then becoming leaders within higher ed and then finding people who would both have the skill sets to be a successful provost, which tends to be a much more inward focused job, you know, obviously intensely important in terms of the whole of the academic enterprise. Um, and then the, a presidency, which is much more externally focused, dealing with all of those stakeholders and, and, and those things, having people who have the skill set to do all three of those, it, it seems to me it, 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 that's a very difficult proposition. And yet that was, and, and probably still is the most common or one of the most common paths. And so, you know, curious how you think about, you know, those transitions and, and, and how people develop the skill sets for the next piece. Good question. I mean, yeah, you're right. People who choose to be academics begin, whether they want to or not, writing dissertations in, you know, library carols and lonely offices and bedrooms, you know, studies. 
um, and that's the way you begin your job. Um, but that said, these are also people who often are excited by the life of the mind. They're excited by, they get stimulated by teaching. They enjoy their colleagues. They come upon larger sets of issues that motivate them. You know, I watched that in my father to go back to the beginning and my mother who ended up loving the work in all its dimensions. And when you see those people, their colleagues push them on to leadership jobs um, because they're people whose span of understanding and skill set is broader than some of the others. And, and their interests are. Um, yes, there are people who get reluctantly pushed into academic leadership roles and all they can think about is how long do I have to do this of service to my institution before I can get the hell out and be back teaching. But there are also people who discover to their surprise sometimes and to their delight, hopefully, that they're good at this larger array. And yes, provosts can be narrow jobs, but they also can be very, I mean, talk about political jobs. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, you, if you're a vice president for advancement, vice president for role manager, vice president for students, you can fire the people who work for you. Um, they, you know, that you have a particular, you're going to change the way you do enrollment management. You're going to change the way you read folders. You have a new organizational set. Consultant comes in and tells you what you've been doing is wrong. You train the people to do it differently. And if they don't, well, then you move on to other people. With your faculty, you don't, can't fire them. You can't train them to do things differently if they don't want to hear that. So it can be extraordinarily good training, but it has to be the, a person with the dimensions that can move them beyond the job. And, um, and there are some who are wonderful at that, and there are some who are not. And of course, that's true of any, any group. I mean, there are, um, there are non-traditional presidents who bring a set of skills that can be extraordinarily enriching and beneficial for an institution. And there are others who cannot make the cultural change and don't get a appreciation for the fact that they're in a different place than they once were. Um, and it blows up as a result. Um, can you say a little, wh when did you start the seminar for experienced presidents and how does that differ in, in your right. approach to the new presidents? And actually, the name has changed slightly. It's now called Seminar on Presidential Leadership, but it's the same program. Yeah. That came about simply because presidents who had been in the new presidents program said, I want to come back and talk with people. Um, and um, we had one woman one year who had been in a seminar for new presidents. Actually, she's been in one of our programs before that is in a role below the presidency. Been the new presidents. She'd come twice to the experienced presidents. And she was retiring and she said, so when are you going to develop the seminar for retired presidents? <laughs> um, so that was fun. But it was, you know, that there are, in the same way, the conversations around leadership transitions and searches led to my thinking with colleagues. I want to make sure this isn't just me. It was with wonderful colleagues about this seminar for new presidents. The conversations with presidents who had come to the program and others who were, who were in the op said, yes, we have associations and they're terrific, but sometimes it's helpful to think of people from other kinds of institutions and in a much more, in a smaller, more seminal life. And so that program's actually always been smaller. 
It's not never been 50 or 60. It's usually in the vicinity of about 20. And um, and part of what I put in there in the early days, and I've kept in there because there's been such a positive reaction to, is the question to presidents to think about where are you in the arc of your presidency? And, you know, what, how do you re, in, if, if you are midstream, what are some of the hazards for presidents who are after a few years? You know, what do, what, and if you're thinking about staying or leaving, what do you really, what are some of those important considerations? What are the good reasons for staying and the bad reasons for staying? And when does, how do you make a consideration about whether it's time for you to go, assuming it's choice. I mean, sometimes yeah. we certainly know it's not. Um, so some of that is the kind of thinking you can do with colleagues away from your campus. And that's very helpful for people. Um, you have a really unique perspective on higher ed, having worked with so many leaders from every different type of higher ed institutions, public or private, small or large, religious or not. I'm curious, as you look out over the next decade of higher ed, what you see as the the biggest issues, challenges, things that that presidents are are facing, are likely to be facing, um, and and how you think about kind of preparing them for that. I've never been very, very good at, at these kinds of forecasting. And if I was ever good at it, COVID pandemic has completely thrown that out the window. Um, so I guess I, the, the biggest thing is that for me is that there is such pressure and need for institutions to change. The last AGB meeting, the word everywhere you turned, I think on every panel and every conversation was transform, to transform institutions. And that excites me and makes me really leery because it can mean losing some of the best in search of what seems to be pragmatic or you know decisions that have to be made for financial reasons or in search of innovation for innovation's sake. And so I think presidents are going to be in a really are in, and will probably continue to be, in a position of enormous uncertainty, enormous um, complexity, with huge pressures on them to change, alongside with other pressures on them to always, of course, retain and stay the same. Um, and how do you navigate your way through that? in a way that is um, healthiest for your institution. Um, certainly staying the same is not going to be healthy for your institution, but neither can sort of dramatically, taking on dramatically new initiatives because you think other people are doing that or, you know, betting your bank, the bank on things that may fail. Yep. And, and then there's the whole problem of exhausting people in the process and morale. Um, so if I were to look at, the, so one is the conditions of our time. 
<coughs> excuse me, and their impact on presidents. The second would be both internally the ability of people, and the, and that's morale, and that's exhaustion, and that's the ability of people to change, and then the external politics of our world and the way that it is pressuring institutions um, and um, interfering, as I said before, in some serious ways with our core values. So, so navigating all that is your job. I just get to, to hear as people try to struggle with all that. So, so, so when I look back on on our cohort from 2016, um, you know, I've had a chance to interview several of my uh, classmates on this, um, but I know of at least three of our 56 that have undergone a merger or a significant transformation institutional strategic alliance and then one of course mark his his campus the american college of Af afghanistan was invaded like the, the month after our program so that obviously was was atypical but but that issue of of sort of large scale institutional transformation whether through merger acquisition alliance or other what, was our class atypical? Are you seeing that more and more in when you look at cohorts? And, and is it something you expect to see further? Yes. I, in the last week, I've had two conversations with presidents who were thinking about what, how, how might we best consider this as an option? In neither case are they saying we're going to do this. But they're looking at sort of all contingencies. And that has certainly become one that is has some appeal. And in some cases, they're land deals. And the institution really is disappears. But they disappear with financial integrity. And that's not unimportant, certainly. And in others, it really is a coming together with different strengths um, in a way that enhances both. So yes, that's very much aware. By the way, the, we, all, we continue to have American universities and international universities. And the political issues there make, in some cases, make the ones that we deal with look, you know, mundane. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious, um, you know, you've alluded to some of the changes that have happened with with boards, you know, from being soporific to more engaged, sometimes too engaged. But but if you look at colleges and universities as a, as a whole, right, they're among the most stable institutions we've had on the planet, right? If there's anything we would say they've been successful at it is, is they've really, you know, persisted hugely over time um, and, and carrying out their mission. Um, and yet, you know, I think most would agree that, you know, even if it's a buzzword, that transformation, change, disruption seems to be much more the order of the day at the moment. I, I'm curious as you look and think about not just the individual leaders, but the governance of these institutions, are, are, are they well prepared to deal with not stability, but with this level of change that, that institutions may be facing? Some are, and some are certainly not. Yeah. Um, boards have been among the slowest constituencies 
or groups on, on a, at an institution to change. Um, and partly because they're self-perpetuating, at least in the private sector, in the public sector, because they're appointed by, they actually, they may change pretty frequently in the public sector. They can be appointed by governors who turn over them and then you get a whole new board again. But, um, you know, student bodies change every four years. Administrators change. Faculty are slow, um, particularly in te heavily tenured institutions with, now that we for a long time have not had um, mandatory retirements, they can be even slower to change. But boards look more like they used to than any other constituency in terms of diversity, in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of backgrounds. Not entirely true because more boards are beginning to realize that they need to have more women and more people of color. Of course, the women and people of color typically you know, or a similar profile. They come from similar industries and so forth. So um, boards have been slower to change. Boards are also often the ones pushing for, quote, transformation and innovation because they, and not inappropriately, they feel that their responsibility is the long-term future of the institution. And they want to make sure that they preserve its future from what kind of decisions are being made in the present. And I think they should be. Boards are both sometimes a this, this strongest impetus of pressure for change. And at other times, they're the most conservative force in the institution. And that's, and in some ways, that's the way it should be. This conversation about transformation and change is the language of the moment. And I think it's appropriate language of the moment. Although, of course, what you and I might mean by transformation and somebody uh, might be might differ and when institutions tell me that they have been that uh, well, when I read about a president who's been transformative sometimes I'll look at that president and Paul LeBlanc at Southern New Hampshire University nobody would doubt has been transformative no question and yet there are other institutions where I hear read about leadership having been transformative and I think those presidents who did some wonderful things and they added some new programs and they did some other interesting things. But the core institution is the core institution. And so, you know, transformation can be right. more in small areas, at the margins, in some major ways here or there, but, or it can be really sure. quite remarkable and overwhelming. Well, and frankly, probably very few boards or stakeholders at what are viewed as the most successful institutions are are looking for transformation, right? I, one of the people I got to interview on this, Gordon Gee, you know, he the one place he didn't last very long was Brown, and he said, you know, you know, this this was not a place that was, you know, they 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 wanted me, but but they really didn't want much change, and and because they were good at what they did, and yeah. so. But even the places that are good at what they do are beginning in, and, and this is the product of our times and the pandemic more than any single event I think will have that make that happen, are thinking about some new things they wouldn't have tried. I mean, yep. Online education. Sure. Faculty resisted that with great fervor for many, many years, and then they were forced into it. And by the way, took to it 
with more determination to learn how to do it well than in many administrators had ever believed they could or would. And now some of those same people are saying, we ought to do this. Yep. Yes. And and did it in a remarkably quick time, right? I mean, the entire sector within a, for most folks, not even a week, right? A matter of days pivoted. And so, so there, there are huge, you know, there's huge inertia in higher education. Let's stay the same and keep doing what we always did, in particular if we think we've always done it well. That gets shaken when inertia threatens the the future life of an institution and the jobs of the people who work there. But there are also other events that, like the pandemic, which shake it and then people are looking at it and saying, you know, there may be some some things we could be doing differently. Absolutely. Judy, this has been a wonderful conversation. Are, are any final things that, that we haven't touched on, but sort of your thoughts, insights around higher ed leadership that, that you want to share? You've asked such good questions. I'm not, I'm not sure I can come up with, with any. Um, just that, you know, I do feel over the many years of working with presidents, that not every single one, but almost all, approach these jobs with the best hopes and best intentions and really wanting to do well and make a difference. They're hard jobs. They're situations that are impossible. Um, They're mistakes that people make. Um, Sure, not every one of them works out. But I am reminded each year when I meet with a group of new presidents why I both enjoy this enterprise and value it so much and why I admire the people who choose to take on these important and really hard leadership roles. So thank you, David, as one of those. Well, and thank you for for mentoring generations of, of leaders who are, who are making such a dif- difference. It's really a, it's a joy to speak with you and wish you all the best with the, the this newest cohort to come and look forward to seeing you at, at our, our future class reunions. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.